So, Father, as we come to your word, we pray for light. We pray for illumination, that we may understand your word. Give me the right words to explain and expound upon your words. That we may take them to heart and that we may find comfort and strength in them. Your strength. We also pray for our children who are here. We thank you for them. We remember that they are a gift from you. And even for the children in the womb, we thank you for them. And we pray, Lord, that whether the children are inside the womb or outside the womb, we pray for their salvation today. We pray that you would draw them into your marvelous light as well in due time. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20 today. And the text that we find ourselves in today, I believe, falls in the same context that we ended chapter 7 with, that, that last day, that special Sabbath assembly of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is still speaking in the temple in Jerusalem as we come to this text. He's speaking to those who are gathered at the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. So these are the very same people that Jesus invited to come to him in faith, the very same people who heard him say back in chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. See, both chapters 7 and 8 are focused on Jesus revealing his identity as God incarnate to these people. And one of the reasons I believe that the story of the adulterous woman, uh, which is found in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, one of the reasons I believe that that text doesn't belong is because of the themes that we saw in chapter 7, one of which was the inability of anyone at the Feast of Booths to stop or to silence Jesus. And we're going to see that here today in our passage again as well. So what we see in chapters 7 and 8 is one continuous revelation from Jesus that he is the one to whom the events of the Feast of Booths all pointed. All of the symbolism, it all pointed to Jesus himself. In chapter 7, Jesus claimed to be living water. We started to look at this passage last week when we studied uh, verse 12 of chapter 8, and we saw that Here he claimed to be the light of the world. Those are two ways of making the same claim, living water and being the light of the world. We should also notice that Jesus, back in uh, chapter 7, verse 38, urged people to believe in him. In verse 12 of this chapter, he urges people to follow him. Again, same thing. Following Jesus and believing in Jesus are the exact same thing. How do we know if we're following Jesus? Because we believe in him. How do we know if we believe in him? Because we're following him. Two sides of the same coin. It's synonymous. In chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus offers living water to those who believe in him. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus offers light, saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what we see is that there are several parallels between chapter 7, verse 38, and chapter 8, verse 12. But let's remember what we saw immediately following that wonderful gospel invitation back in chapter 7. We saw that the people didn't believe. But they were divided, remember? They were all divided. They all, they all had some kind of idea, wrong ideas, about who Jesus was. And you'll remember that the Pharisees had ordered that the temple guards arrest Jesus. And when the temple guards did not arrest Jesus, the excuse they gave the Pharisees was that they were enamored by the way Jesus spoke. The point being, nobody was able to silence or stop Jesus. See, the Gospel of John is very, very gospel-centered. We see invitations to believe in Jesus all over the place. 
in John's gospel. That's, that's why he wrote it, so that we would believe and receive eternal life. And for that reason, it's also something of a case study in disbelief. Because that's generally the response of people whenever an invitation to savingly believe in him was given. And that's what we're going to see today. Disbelief. The reaction of the Pharisees who, who represent, remember the Pharisees represent unregenerate man. Uh, the, the adherent of man-made religion. So we see that the Pharisees will respond very negatively to Jesus' invitation to follow him and to receive light from him. But let's start by once again looking at the invitation that he issues to the people in verse 12. He says, we read, then, then, John spoke, then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now last week we saw that when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, he was making a claim to be God. To be God in human flesh, God incarnate. We saw the kind of darkness in contrast that Jesus delivers those who follow him from. He, he, he delivers them from foolishness, from evil, from misery, and from the wrath of God. But we've also seen in John's gospel that people love darkness and hate the light because their deeds are evil. As the light of the world who shines in the darkness, Jesus reveals something. That's what light does. By, by its very nature, that's exactly what light does. It reveals. And there are two primary things that Jesus reveals as the light of the world. The first thing that Jesus reveals as the light of the world is the truth about God. What does man, by his very nature, do with the truth about God, according to Scripture? He suppresses it in unrighteousness. But Jesus reveals the truth about God nonetheless. He reveals the Father. As John told us back in chapter 1, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. In John 14, 7, Jesus will say, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Why? Because he reveals the Father. He reveals the truth about God. And then in verse 9, same chapter, chapter 14, Jesus says to Andrew, he who has, or to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So when I say that Jesus reveals the truth about God, I mean that apart from Jesus, nobody knows the truth about God. We can only know God through Jesus. If we don't know Jesus, if we don't believe in Jesus, we don't know or have or believe in God. So the first thing that Jesus, as the light of the world, reveals is the truth about God. The second thing that Jesus, as the light of the world, reveals is the truth about ourselves. Scripture is clear that the heart is desperately wicked. It's not mildly wicked. It's desperately wicked. Wicked beyond measure. Jeremiah 17, 9. And, and Jesus, who is the light of the world, shows us how dark, how wicked, how depraved we truly are by nature. We see that over and over again in, in John's Gospel when people reject Jesus, even though they have every reason in the world to believe in him. They, they see him do miracles like feed 5,000 men and their families. And they still won't believe. Over and over again, that's what we see when people reject Jesus even though they have every reason to follow him. What Jesus reveals about ourselves includes the fact that apart from him, we are completely, by nature, lost in darkness. When Jesus says, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life, he's revealing something very important about us. He's revealing that apart from him, we don't have the light of life. He's implying that man, by nature, 
is lost and in a condition of spiritual darkness, which is another way of saying that we are spiritually dead, which means we're separated from God completely. He's the source of life and light. And this is the same concept that Paul drives home in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where Paul writes, And you were dead, spiritually. He's speaking spiritually here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So the point that Paul's making there is the same thing that Jesus is saying here in, or the the same thing that Jesus is implying here in John chapter 8. Spiritual death that Paul talks about is the same concept as the spiritual darkness that Jesus is talking about. So when we say that Jesus is the source of light and life, we see that it's addressing both of those sides of the coin. So what that tells us, what that reveals to us, is that our greatest need is grace. That's our greatest need. Now if you were to go up to, the, to somebody on the streets who's an unbeliever and ask them what their greatest need is, chances are very good that they won't say, my greatest need is for God to show me grace. And that's because Jesus is the one who reveals that to us. Jesus is the one who reveals that about us, that our greatest need is grace. We need God's resurrection power to impart life, spiritual life, to our souls. That's the only way for us to have life. And by nature, we hate the light so much, and we love evil so much, that we would never, ever choose it for ourselves. Dead men don't make choices. And this is why it's so vitally important, friends, that every single one of us makes sure that we are truly, truly following Jesus. I'm not just talking about having said the sinner's prayer. I'm not talking about going forward at an at a evangelistic crusade. Those things are great. Those things are, are fine. But those things don't necessarily indicate whether or not a person has truly been saved. We must make sure that we are truly following Jesus because that's the only way to have spiritual life. How do we know if we're following Jesus? J.C. Ryle explains it in very straightforward terms. He says, quote, To follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every manner, both of doctrine and practice, end quote. And friends, for the one who follows by faith now, that person will surely possess by sight later. And how do you suppose the Pharisees responded to this amazing invitation or command to follow him? Let's start by asking how they should have responded. How about that? They should have responded exactly the way J.C. Ryle explains following Christ. They should have submitted to him. They should have worshipped him. They should have loved him. They should have believed in him. After all, these are the people who, who would have very, very, been very, very familiar with the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And Jesus is saying to him, I am that Lord. And this is the one response that would have been appropriate. To love him, to obey him, to yield to him, all in faith. To worship him in faith. That's what the Pharisees should have done. But now we're going to see what they do instead. They reject him. Let's continue with verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, 
you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. That's an interesting objection. Interesting. The objection is basically, we don't believe what you're saying about yourself because you're bearing testimony about yourself. You're the one who's witnessing about yourself, and so therefore, your testimony is invalid. Now, the reasoning uh, behind this, this argument, behind this appeal, comes from the instruction from the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That's due process under Jewish law. And that seems as fair as can be, doesn't it? Two or three witnesses. If you're, if you're going to make a, uh, an accusation against somebody, if you're going to prosecute somebody for a crime, you need to have some witnesses. But there are at least two enormous problems with using that, with, with referring to that law, to that due process. And based on the obvious nature of these mistakes, I have to believe that these men, these Pharisees, They don't care about the problems with their argument. They don't care that they're ripping something out of context and twisting it. They have to argue because they apparently felt a need to validate their disbelief at any cost, no matter how ridiculously off the reason might be. Now, the first problem with them referring to this system of due process is that the requirement for two or three witnesses was the criteria for criminal charges, For criminal charges. What criminal charges have been brought against Jesus? None. None. So so listen to that verse again. You can't miss the context of criminal prosecution here. It says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed criminal prosecution that it's talking about. And Jesus was not on trial here. He wasn't being tried for any crimes, any iniquities, any sins, and he certainly didn't commit any sins. So if the Pharisees wanted to use the law of Moses to test and to to try Jesus, the criteria that they should have been referring to, if they knew the scriptures and loved the scriptures and wanted to abide by the scriptures... The criteria they should have used was the criteria for determining whether a prophet was true or false, which involved a totally different set of procedures than this. That's the first problem. Jesus isn't on trial. He's not facing criminal charges or charges of sin. The second problem with this accusation is that Jesus did have plenty of witnesses. And all the Pharisees would have had to have done was ask one of them, how about the Samaritan woman at the well? How about John the Baptist? How about even their own co-Pharisee, Nicodemus, who said to Jesus back in chapter 3, quote, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Nicodemus knew, and he's there. We saw him at the end of chapter 7. What about the man who was healed? At the Pool of Bethesda back in chapter 5. There are so many eyewitnesses. All he would have needed to have done if they wanted to have two or three witnesses was talk to one of those people. They didn't have a shortage of witnesses. If they had really wanted the testimony of two or three, Jesus could have provided dozens, hundreds, however many they wanted. But it's not about that. It's not about that. So what's it about? How how do we explain their argument against Jesus here? All we can say is that it's driven by willful ignorance and rebellious disbelief. And anytime anybody twists Scripture to fit their own agenda, it's driven by the same thing. Willful ignorance and or rebellious disbelief. See, friends, you and I need to see this for what it is. Because you and I, if we are faithful to 
shine the light in the darkness, if we are faithful to evangelize, we will see the exact same thing take place. People will come up with all kinds of ridiculous arguments to ease their conscience from the guilt of denying the God who they know is worthy of their worship and devotion. That truth that they have suppressed in unrighteousness, they suppressed it intentionally. And they will continue to suppress it, no matter how ridiculous an argument they have to make. And the reason that we should expect this is because there is nothing, there is not a single thing that is rational about disbelief when it comes to Jesus. The evidence for Jesus being God incarnate is more than abundant, which demonstrates that it's really not a matter of evidence at all. It's a matter of willful, stubborn, rebellious hatred of God. As Richard Phillips says in his commentary, he says, quote, Unbelief never runs out of objections and never has sufficient proof. End quote. And this is why, friends, when you are sharing the gospel, you don't need to fall into the trap of needing to prove this or prove that, needing, needing to prove everything. Because they know that God exists. They know it. They've suppressed it. But they know it. It's not a matter of proof. It's not a matter of evidence. It's not an intellectual matter. It's a matter of the heart and the will of a person. And only God can deal with a person on that level. All we can do is be faithful to plant seeds. That's all we're called to do, is plant seeds. See, the Pharisees rejected Jesus because he didn't validate them. He wouldn't comply with the desires that they had, the agenda that they had. And so Jesus goes on to explain this for them. Let's continue with verses 14 and 15. John tells us, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. So, he's basically saying, you didn't judge correctly. But why haven't they judged correctly? Jesus says it's because they judged according to the flesh. They judged according to the flesh. Now that's kind of a tricky term, isn't it? What does that mean exactly? Uh, what does it mean to judge according to the flesh? Well, the fact that commentators uh, have a few different interpretations or understandings on this immediately reminds us to approach that question with charity and grace. Some would say that it means that because the Son of God was cloaked in, in human flesh, it's just another way of saying that they couldn't physically perceive his deity. Others say that it means that the flesh, which represents our sin nature, right? Uh, that, that the flesh caused them to reject him. And that's the understanding that makes the most sense to me and which seems to fit best with the context. For, to, to judge according to the flesh means to judge sinfully and wrongly. Judging on appearances, not on what is true. Their rejection of Jesus, then, is due to sin. It's due to the fact that they had sinful ambitions. Their agenda didn't fit with God's agenda. Not in the least bit. If it had, they would have received him. And we know this because there were false messiahs who came after Jesus' time, false messiahs whose agenda did align with the Pharisees, and they welcomed him. They welcomed them. They, they, they received those false messiahs. So if a person, we need to understand this, if a person comes to Jesus with some kind of agenda of their own, of the flesh, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to be disappointed. They're going to be disappointed. And, and make no mistake about it, by nature, everyone, you and me and everybody, by nature, wants a God who looks just like them, who loves the things that they love, and who hates the things that they hate. When you hear godless politicians 
refer to the Bible, you know, quote the Bible or refer to Jesus to, to justify godless, unbiblical policies. That's exactly what is happening. And I think it's important to add that that happens on both sides. It's not just the left, it's also the right and everybody in between. Let me give you an example that's come forth in recent times. A few months ago, the church was asked to participate in the lockdown and to, lo- and to not meet. And a lot of people were saying that this was how we must obey the second greatest commandment, which is to love our neighbors. In other words, loving our neighbors means staying home from church. That was, that was the, the justification. So let me get this straight. We have to forsake the first table of the law in order to uphold the second table of the law? We have to disobey the first table in order to keep the second table? That's not how it works. That's, that's not a valid justification. There, there are valid justifications. There have been times in church history where the church hasn't met because of some type of viral outbreak or bacterial outbreak. Uh, it, when, in times when uh, there was a health risk in, in gathering, there have been times when the church hasn't gathered. But that, that justification, this justification that loving our neighbors means staying home from church, that's not valid at all. That's not valid at all. It's not a valid expression of love for our neighbor to stay home from church. One of the most disgusting things and, and sad things that I've seen in my career as a pastor has happened recently with churches not meeting. There are still many churches across our nation that are still not meeting. But there was one very well-known evangelical pastor who about a month and a half ago specifically instructed his congregation not to go to church one Sunday, but instead to go out and march in a protest rally. The sad thing about something like that is that that demonstrates a higher allegiance to a political agenda than to Jesus. It's the same thing that the Pharisees are doing here. And again, make no mistake about it, it's not just liberals. Conservatives do the same thing. Their allegiance wasn't to God. It's to an agenda of the flesh. That's what's going on with the Pharisees. And if our allegiance, friends... If your allegiance and my allegiance isn't primarily to God, then it is not to God at all. That's why Jesus would say that a person can't serve God and money. Friends, you can't serve God and anything. God must be our first priority. Serving Him, worshiping Him, has to be our greatest priority. Money is just the most common competition that God faces for the throne of the human heart. You and I, and everyone, liberals, conservatives, everybody in between, must lay our agenda down in order to truly come to Jesus. Because he will not go along with an agenda of the flesh. Left to himself and to his desires and agendas, man cannot and will not reach the top shelf or even try to reach the top shelf when it comes to his pursuit of truth. We all, by nature, have agendas and expectations about God that would restrain us and prevent us from believing in Jesus savingly. Even after being drawn to Jesus by the Father and believing in Jesus savingly by the power and persuasion of the Holy Spirit, we still have agendas and expectations about Jesus that are false and with which we must do daily battle. Jesus stepped down from eternity, took on flesh in order to reveal God to a lost, broken, dark world. And he knew... Jesus knew, as the second person of the Trinity, he knew where he came from. He was fully aware of the fact that he was God incarnate, God in human flesh. And he knew that when he had completed his work on earth, that he would go to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Knowing all this, Jesus simply knew something that neither the Pharisees nor anyone else by nature knew about him. So knowing what he knew, there was no argument that could change or discredit what he knew. His testimony was valid whether the Pharisees or anyone else wanted to believe in him or not. The person who rejects Jesus' claims can only do so 
with deliberately spiritually blinded eyes. And the spiritual testimony of a spiritually blind man is invalid for obvious reasons. The person who rejects Jesus does so because they, jo- they judge according to the flesh. They judge according to sinful, wicked principles. The unbelieving person rejects Jesus because Jesus will neither accommodate nor validate a sinful, earthly agenda or desire. The person who believes in a Jesus who looks and whose thoughts and whose values look just like the person's thoughts, looks, and values should consider the possibility that maybe, just maybe, they don't really truly believe in the real biblical Jesus after all. Because Jesus didn't come to establish a Marxist ideology, but at the same time, Jesus didn't come to establish a capitalist free market. Jesus didn't come to embrace a conservative political ideology, and he didn't come to advocate for a liberal political ideology. Instead, he came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to transform society. He came to transform his people. People individually, from slaves to sin, into servants and friends of God. And in order for that to happen... For a person to be transformed from being a slave to sin, which is our condition by nature, into a a servant and friend of God, requires that we lay down our personal agendas and desires and yield ourselves in willful submission to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm not judging anyone. Notice, first of all, that that is present tense. He doesn't say, I would never judge anyone. He just says that in that moment, he wasn't judging anyone. It wasn't Jesus' mission to come and judge. People were already condemned. We saw that back in John chapter 3. Jesus came to save. Unlike his adversaries here, the Pharisees, Jesus didn't judge according to the flesh. He didn't come to pass judgment on anyone. But we must remember that he is coming again. And that when he does come again, only then will he judge the living and the dead. These Pharisees judged based on sinful, wicked ambition. But Jesus will one day judge the world in righteousness. Harry Ironside was a famous evangelist and preacher of the early 20th century. And he told the story of how Sir Isaac Newton once had a colleague who didn't believe in Jesus as Newton did. And when the colleague wanted to discuss with Newton, um, you know, his, his justification for his unbelief, Newton responded by saying this, quote, Sometimes I come into my study, and in my absent-mindedness, I attempt to light my candle with the extinguisher over it. And I fumble about to light it, and cannot. But when I remove the extinguisher, then I'm able to light the candle. I am afraid the extinguisher, in your case, is the love of your sins. It is deliberate unbelief that is in you. Turn to God in repentance. Be prepared to let the Spirit of God reveal His truth to you, and it will be His joy to show you the glory of the grace of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. End quote. It's a wonderful illustration of the problem of the Pharisees and anyone else who rejects Jesus in unbelief. They refused to come into the light. They loved the darkness because their deeds, their desires, their ambitions were evil. And Jesus would have no part of that. If we're to follow Jesus, friends, we must come into the light. And we must walk in the light, repenting of every sinful desire and ambition and yielding ourselves in joyful submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus continues explaining and and, and attacking the unbelief of the Pharisees. Let's continue reading verses 16 to 20, where Jesus continues by saying, Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. 
I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now verse 16 might seem kind of tricky where Jesus says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. That might seem kind of tricky. It's a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around exactly what Jesus is saying there. But I think that understanding it starts with understanding that Jesus and the Father are one, and that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And so everything that Jesus did was in accordance with the Father's will. Everything, including what he said. Including what he testified of, which includes, obviously, himself. Jesus didn't come to judge anyone, but if he did, he wouldn't be mistaken. He couldn't be mistaken, as the Pharisees were, and that's because he would judge as the Father judges. If Jesus would have judged differently than the Father, let's think about this for a minute. If Jesus and the Father judged differently, then Jesus couldn't have been doing the Father's will. Does that make sense? At least one of them would have to be mistaken, which is impossible. So, so Jesus, as the Son of God, would judge the same way and would say the same thing that the Father says. And Jesus has just claimed to be the light of the world. And as such, think about this. What kind of light could possibly be brought to inspect light? What kind of light would be more revealing than the light that Jesus is? Does light reveal itself? Does light reveal light? No, light reveals itself, and for that reason, Jesus is not subject to worldly standards of judgment. Let me say that again. Jesus isn't subject to worldly standards of judgment. See, with worldly standards of judgment, you can kind of take it or leave it. But not with Jesus. Not with Jesus. Imagine... Imagine somebody interrogating Bill Gates on what he could possibly know or understand about computers before they allow him to lecture to a group of computer engineers and programmers. You know, you you can kind of picture how ridiculous it would be. Imagine he walks into this, uh, this classroom and immediately a hand in the front row goes up and Bill Gates, wanting to be charitable or whatever, says, uh, do you have a question? And the young man stands up and responds by saying, what are your credentials? Where did you go to college? Give us a summary of your job experience and give us a few job recommendations before we allow you to speak. You can imagine how ridiculous that would be. It's laughable, isn't it? If that's laughable, how much more laughable, how much more exponentially and insanely laughable is it that anyone would demand evidence of Jesus when it comes to his teaching on spiritual matters. He's God incarnate. Who would know better than he does? Nobody. The truth is that light reveals itself. It doesn't need another light to reveal it. It doesn't need another light to inspect it. And in the same way, Jesus' testimony concerning himself validates itself. But if these Pharisees had wanted anyone else's testimony, Jesus wouldn't say anything with which the Father disagrees. So so there's your second person. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. He's arguing from from the lesser to the greater. Their law, and notice he, he says it's your law, their law required the testimony of two or three human witnesses in cases of criminal prosecution, and if that's the case, how much more convincing, if, if, if two or three human witnesses are needed, how much more convincing is the testimony of God? See, the Jews, they knew and they believed that the testimonies and the judgments of God were always true and were always pure and were always right. They had always believed this. Uh, When God was going to strike down the city of Sodom, Abraham's plea with God was, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Because he knew that God was perfectly good and just. 
He knew that God was incapable of judging wrongly. And the same principle, by the way, applies to God's word. Is the Bible light? It is. Absolutely. And as such, it is self-validating. People come up with all kinds of objections and silly arguments against the Bible, far too many to examine with the time that we have here today. But the way to address a person's objections to the Bible, whatever those objections might be, is actually to refer back to the Bible. Because it's the preaching of God's Word that changes hearts. It's the Word. It's, it's the testimony of God. What could be a higher authority than the testimony of God? So what could be a higher testimony, a higher source of authority than the Bible? What light could shine brighter than the Bible does to reveal the light of the Bible? You, you don't refer to a lesser source of authority to prove a greater source of authority. God's judgments are always true, and they are always pure, and they are always right. And Jesus, who is fully God, therefore always judges in truth. Now there are two things that help us understand that, two, two characteristics of God that help us to understand that. First is the fact that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. No person in their right mind claims to be all-knowing, but God alone is all-knowing. Nothing is hidden from him. He's ignorant of absolutely nothing. All we see and all we understand is what we've been exposed to, what we've, what we've had to learn. God's never learned anything. He just knows everything. We struggle to even know and understand ourselves. But God doesn't. So the first characteristic that guarantees that God always judges justly and rightly is the fact that he's all-knowing. Secondly, his judgments are just because he's holy and he's righteous. A holy and righteous God who's not all-knowing could still judge falsely and wrongly, but a holy and righteous God who is all-knowing can only judge justly and truthfully. What Jesus says, therefore, is true. He is the light of the world. The refusal of the Pharisees to see that light and to follow that light doesn't change that fact because they weren't all-knowing and they weren't holy and righteous. See, for a person to, to say that they don't believe in the God of the Bible who reveals himself fully in Jesus Christ, they would have to believe that they know everything there is to know about the God of the Bible. C consider what a ridiculous claim that is. They would have to be all-knowing in order to deny that the all-knowing God exists. Ask an atheist, have you considered every single piece of evidence? Is it possible that there's something that you don't know? They have to say, of course there's a possibility of something I don't know. Well, there you go. You can't say that no God exists then because you haven't seen all the proof. If they knew everything, they would be God. And maybe that's part of the problem, isn't it? Their desire to be God. And these Pharisees, they understood what Jesus was saying. They're, they're tracking with him. They're following him, which is why they continue to resist, saying, where is your father? And Jesus drops the fullest weight of the heaviest greatest judgment that anyone could ever face. He drops it right on them. The fact that they don't know his Father. They don't know God. The only way to know God is to know Jesus. And to believe in Jesus. What is God's testimony of Jesus? It's the same as Jesus' testimony concerning himself. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He says, I am the light of the world. Each of these is not only a claim to be God incarnate, but each of these statements places a responsibility on the shoulders of every person to come to him in faith, in true saving faith. Now you might call that an invitation, but it is also implicitly a command issued by God. The Pharisees had the exact same moral and spiritual obligation, friends, that we have today. And that is to believe in Jesus. 
to follow Jesus, who is the light of the world. Anyone who is honestly and truly willing to seek and submit to the truth, whatever it might be, they will end up being a Christian. They will end up professing Christ as Lord and Savior. God has provided the testimony of his power being demonstrated through the transformation of his people, and God has provided the testimony of his word, which points to Christ from beginning to end. The way to come to the truth is not to put God on trial. The way to come to the truth is not to put God's word on trial. The way to come to the truth is not to put Jesus on trial. No, the way to come to the truth is to allow God's word to put you on trial. For you'll get the verdict that you are a sinner who stands guilty before God, totally in bondage to sin, unable to break free from that bondage to sin by yourself. But you'll also find in his word the blessed promise of the gospel the blessed promise of grace, the blessed promise of forgiveness and redemption through faith alone in Christ alone. The Pharisees could harden their hearts, but they could not stop or silence Jesus. They had the will to stop Jesus, but they didn't have the power. And the same is true today. People can and will harden their hearts, but God is sovereign. And his plans and his purposes cannot and will not be thwarted. Even though governors may try to silence and stop the church, even though scholars may theorize and hypothesize in an attempt to discredit the Bible, even though the public at large may grow increasingly hostile toward God and his gospel, the good news of redemption in Christ Jesus will continue to be proclaimed around the world until God says, that's it. But through that good news, through the preaching of the good news, God will accomplish all that he desires and has purposed to accomplish. The world has as much of a chance of silencing the gospel as the grave had of holding Jesus down. God has designed and ordained that this work of shining light in the darkness would be done in this age through his church. And until our work is done, until God says our work is done, our light, the light of the gospel, must continue and will continue to shine forth in the midst of this dark and disbelieving world. Until God's work on earth is done, he will keep us. Until God's work on earth is done, he will sustain us. He will preserve us by his power. And as he does, he will continue to irresistibly call people out of darkness, drawing people by his grace into his light, to the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember this, friends, and hold very tightly to this truth. No matter how much darkness we're confronted with in this world, the light of the gospel cannot be extinguished. The light of the gospel cannot be extinguished. God's purposes will prevail, and all that he has ordained, which is good and which is just, will come to pass. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word and for the way that it feeds, nourishes, and strengthens your people. Thank you for the gospel, the glorious, beautiful gospel, the good news that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are brought into a different standing with you, changed from slaves to sin 
into slaves to Christ. Servants and friends of God Almighty. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for calling us into your marvelous light. And we pray, O oh Father, that in the midst of these dark times, that the light of your church, whether in California or here in Washington or in Hawaii or in Maine or in whatever country around the world, that your light would continue to shine. That the light of the gospel would continue to shine as your word is preached and you draw people to Christ through it. Oh, Father, give us courage in these dark times. Give us courage to be light. And may many, many be drawn to that light, to Jesus, the light of the world, for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.